What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Yeah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Thank you so much for giving us the most important thing you have, your time. So we try to do what we always do. Take that noisy news cycle, turn the noise down, skip all the caterwaul, and talk about some things that actually do matter and get the good information so that we can do what we need to do, which is better discern the times we live in. Thank you so much for joining us, however you're listening and or watching the program uh, let's start with Congress. We've been talking about it a lot. The government shutdown is now pretty much assured. What does that mean? Let's go to Punchbowl News. If you don't subscribe to Punchbowl News, highly recommend it. Jake Sherman on Twitter and the other great folks over there uh, must have information if you want to keep up with what the Congress critters are doing on Capitol Hill. Uh, as of Wednesday morning, as we record this, let me just read from Punchbowl for a minute. It seems exceedingly likely that the federal government is now going to shut down over the weekend. Full stop. This could change. It's a fast-moving situation. But as of now, when the clock strikes 12.01 on Sunday morning, the government's going to shut down. Now, weekend shutdowns aren't really all too impactful. Again, I'm reading from Punchbowl News here. The full scale of the shutdown won't be felt until Monday morning when the vast majority of federal employees begin their work week. It's also important to note that a government shutdown is a slow-moving crisis. The situation gets more serious each day that agencies can't fully function and hundreds of thousands of federal employees, including the military, don't get paid. Yet our reporting suggests that this shutdown probably won't be limited to the weekend. The Senate on Tuesday evening, the details of the Senate's bipartisan stopgap funding bill, try saying that three times fast if you're from West Virginia, would keep the federal agencies open through November 17th. Let's pause for a second. This is how they normally do these things. They do a, some kind of a CR or something and then push it down the road and figure it out later. Now what Punchbowl is going to describe is why that's probably not going to happen. The White House endorsed Senate bill includes roughly $6 billion in new economic and military aid for Ukraine, plus another $6 billion for disaster relief. There's no border security money nor spending cuts that the House wants. The Senate voted overwhelmingly to advance it, 77 to 19 but Rand Paul reiterated he won't give consent for speedy passage of the continuing resolution because, of course, he won't. This is his moments to shine periodically. Other conservative GOP senators may lock arms with him, but it only takes one anyway, so it doesn't really matter. That means, punchbowl news here, 
The Senate could potentially vote on final passage of the CR as late as Sunday, which is after the government funding already expires. This could be a decent-sized number of no votes, too. But other senators said it was important for the chamber to show it can pass the CR due to the chaos in the House. It seems to change every hour, if not by the minute in the House, and I don't think they can do what they need to do at this point. That's a quote from Senator John Corwin. Quote, but we know what we can do, I think, and that's send over a CR and see what the speaker can do with it. Let's just assume for a moment, again, reading from Punchball here, let's assume for a moment that the Senate can pass its own version of the CR. There is no chance, and we mean zero chance, that Speaker Kevin McCarthy will bring that bill to the floor in its current form. Maybe he'll take up a clean CR a week or so into the shutdown, but McCarthy may have the leeway to consider a clean CR after he's tried to isolate some of the conservative hardliners that he's tried to isolate and get to get a federal employees back to work, but there's no way he can do so right now. McCarthy has to show some fight. It's what a chunk of the House Republican Conference wants. It's his personal inclination as well. McCarthy wanted to amend the Senate CR with House Resolution 2, the House's border security bill. It's a fight over the border security and interior situation at the U.S.-Mexico border, not the deep spending cuts the House Republicans are pushing. We can assume they can get enough Republicans to vote for that, and he may also call for the creation of a debt and deficit commission. Oh, good, that'll fix that. Quote, if they want to focus on Ukraine and not focus on the southern border, I think their priorities are bad, McCarthy said when asked to support by McConnell and the rest. Yet, if there's a movement in the House for the GOP to amend the CR with spending cuts or remove the Ukrainian money, McCarthy will have trouble getting enough votes to pass. McCarthy's plan is to bring up his own stopgap, stop I cannot say that word today, folks, stopgap funding bill later this week. After four other appropriations measures, defense, homeland security, agricultural, and state foreign operations, whether the House can pass any of that is questionable, though the defense bill has the best chance. But the leadership is skeptical the House will be able to pass the GOP-endorsed stopgap funding bill. Remember, multiple House conservatives are opposed to any kind of CR. They just want the shutdown. Assuming there is a shutdown, Punchbowl News finishing up, McCarthy's best chance scenario is convincing the Senate to negotiate with him on the CR, and that will be a tall task. House Republicans will have been seeing this shutdown of the government as a win. Why would the Senate throw him a lifeline? This is a big old hot mess. That's from Punchbowl News. Read the whole thing. I skipped a few portions of it for conciseness for the radio audience. Listen, there's going to be a shutdown because most of Washington wants there to be a shutdown. There's not going to be a shutdown because of Ukraine funding. There's not going to be a shutdown because of the border situation. There's not going to be a shutdown because of whatever talking point or whatever little budget. I No, there's going to be a shutdown because the Republican hardliners want there to be a shutdown for a lot of reasons. Now, they're going to say fiscal responsibility. But as we already covered on this program a couple of days ago, when we went through how the actual government spends its money, they don't really care about that. They just want their pet projects for their ideology and their political ads going into election year to be assaged. Democrats want to shut down because they can blame the GOP for the shutdown. Kevin McCarthy's smart enough to know he doesn't really want to shut down, but understands he's going to have to give them the shutdown and then try to keep it short and use that leverage to only make it last a week or two. Because once you go past two weeks, now people are missing paychecks. If it goes more than a month, people are missing two months. Federal employees have different pay. Some are monthly, some are biweekly, some are on the 1st and the 15th. It just depends. Once people start missing paychecks, now you're going to get the media flooded. They've already started. There was a big um, Washington coverage of the cafeteria worker 
people in the military, people in the VA, not senators, not Congress people, not people who should be missing paychecks because they won't do their jobs, but the sob stories of the folks who are just getting by with their jobs and losing it. Let's set aside the politics and the policy of the shutdown because there's going to be a shutdown because Congress wants it. They did nothing to avert it. They always do this. They always only legislate by crisis, real, imagined, and or contrived. Everybody in Congress did everything they could to get to this point by not doing what they needed to do to skip it. So skip all the noise and skip all the talking points about how, well, this is over Ukraine. This is over fiscal. No, it's not. It's because you didn't do your job for the previous year. So now here we are. Here's where I really have a lot of hatred towards this whole situation, though. Both parties, both leadership teams, a lot of pundits, a lot of political people, they want this shutdown so that they can get the stories in the media of what the shutdown does. But the problem is this affects real people. I've been really disheartened with some folks I've seen on social media. and They're like, well, shut down the government. We don't need all them government employees. Okay, I'll listen to an argument about downsizing the federal government. But you don't do that by just stopping people's paychecks because we can't properly manage the government. You have a plan. We're going to reduce this. We're going to have severance packages. That's how you do that stuff. You don't just start making normal working people miss paychecks. And a lot of the people missing paychecks are not six-figure and up-salaried employees that some of these people on social media seem to think. They're people with families. And frankly, even those people making six figures, they don't deserve it either. They have a right to make their living as well. Don't conflate the arguments because you come off looking like a real jerk that doesn't care about people. Yes, the government needs to be more fiscally responsible, but as we already laid out on this program, with so much of the federal spending going towards entitlements and they won't even talk about it because they're too cowardice to do it and they know politically what it means, this is all failure theater anyway. If they cared about fiscal responsibility, we would have some actions to show they do, not just rhetoric. They don't. But what I have real anger and hatred towards is the way the average working people who work for the government, who just want to check, who just want to feed their families, who just want to do their job, who just want to serve their country in those positions, which is the vast majority of people. The bureaucracy is not their fault. They are now going to purposely be missing checks because people want to get the stories in the media of how these people are missing their checks. And so that other people can say they didn't deserve a check in the first time. That's just gross. If that's the kind of punditry and commentary you like, I don't know what to say to you. What's wrong with you? The suffering of people, while sometimes unavoidable, certainly shouldn't be something we revel and praise in. Why would you be thrilled over people missing their paycheck? If you want to argue the government needs to be smaller, fine. Let's have that argument. There's ways to do that without wrecking people's lives. Just shutting down the government because Congress needs failure theater, both parties, all sides, needs the failure theater for their political purposes is some of the worst examples of bad government, bad leadership, and bad everything that's going on in our country as you can get. Not culture war stuff, not whatever the viral trends are. We cannot have a Congress that can't manage the government so that they can shut it down on purpose, just so they can show people suffering, just so they can get those stories in the media, so that they can use them as leverage to get what they want. That's really bad government, morally, fiscally, leadership-wise, politically, however you want to slice it, that's bad, and the American people deserve better. But here's the kicker. We're the American people. They work for us, and we tolerate this nonsense over and over and over again.
if we don't punish them for acting like this at the ballot box by not letting them keep their jobs when we know all they can do is legislate by crisis, Democrats do it, Republicans do it, everybody's doing it. If we don't make them stop it, they're going to keep doing it. And then we're going to do this over and over and over again. I don't know what word you'd use for that, but it's not good. And it's on us. Let's yell at them about what they're doing right now. But the next time you go to vote, if your Congress critter was one of the ones that was doing failure theater, hold them accountable. Otherwise, they're going to learn the other lesson. Failure theater works because I got to keep my job while a bunch of other people missed a paycheck over it so I could look good in my talking points and on my political ads. Damn them. That's unacceptable. And yet, here we are, accepting it. More Hertel right after this. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. And, uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, Nitu Arnold's back. We were talking sweet tea. I'll just be honest about it, but we need to talk about TikTok a little bit. Uh, we love having her on. She's back on the program. She is a fellow at the National Association of Scholars and a Young Voices contributor. Happy to have you back, my friend. How have you been? I've been great, you know, enjoying the talk about sweet tea and, you know, just <laughs> continuing my work and filing public records requests, which I enjoy. Look, there's people that like sweet tea and there's wrong people. I mean, you just got to know the world you live in. Hi, Kimberly Ross, my good friend that doesn't like sweet tea. I love you. I'm just picking on you. Let's talk TikTok a little bit. Let's start here. Uh, you're writing a national view. We will post the whole piece. Go to the Substack notes, hurtel.substack.com. Read the entire thing, including some really important links in there. Here's where I'm at at TikTok. And then you tell me where you're at TikTok before we get into this specific version of this, because Look, we've seen the main story. These are all spinoffs and sequels now, right? We know what TikTok is. We know TikTok, um, ByteDance, the parent company. We know this is a Chinese-controlled entity. We know anything in China is controlled by the Chinese government or at, at best influenced strongly thereby, probably more so in the TikTok case. I don't think legally in America you can blanket ban TikTok. I do think you should ban it from things like government computers, military computers. We've done that with social media for years. That should be a no-brainer. Kids love it. It's not going away. It's going to stay popular. And that gets us to the education angle that you're bringing. That's where I'm at on TikTok. Where are you? I actually agree with a lot of things you've just said there. I think there's a lot of discussion about banning TikTok. And there are legitimate security concerns regarding TikTok. I mean, um, you know, it is collecting user information. And some would say, well, American companies also do that. But I would say the prime difference is that 
China can essentially compel companies to turn over that information thanks to a 2017 national intelligence law that they have. Uh, whereas in America, it's a lot harder for the government to simply force a company to turn over that information. Usually a judge would have to sign off on a subpoena before an American company has to turn over user information. Uh, I've, I've been thinking about this issue quite a bit because it's always how do you balance national security, but also, um, you know, making sure that we're not having policies that are overreaching and uh, I guess two policy suggestions that I've heard that seem more amenable is one, uh, having a deal with TikTok uh, where they can only operate in America if they're owned by us. So we we are able to buy the company. The other, uh, so the other recommendation I've heard, which I'm also in support of, is uh, just having stronger uh, consumer privacy laws that would apply across all social media companies instead of just TikTok. I think that would be a lot more um, encompassing than simply going after one company. But that's that's my stance on that issue as of right now. Yeah, and that's who honor of joining us. That brings us to what you're writing about in the education sphere because one of the th reasons you want to keep it in America is because we have an ability to have accountability. We're not great at it, but we do have the mechanisms if we would just use them for a lot of things, looking at you, Congress. Um, but we could do accountability here. When it comes to education, there's a bigger overall thing on education. I know, you know, my own favorite school, West Virginia University, they're going through a big thing with their leadership and, and funding and where did the funding go and why there's a shortcut. All higher ed is going to have funding issues and shortfalls other than a few specific schools accountability for that funding is important. This leads us to your article in National Review, though. When you start talking about something like a TikTok, which is extremely popular with college-age students, like that's one of their primary social media platforms. But if you start having money from the parent company at TikTok going to universities, now we're in that accountability sphere. Now we're into oversight by Congress, which is an enumerated power that they're supposed to have. That's where all this starts to combine and we need to talk about it, isn't it? Well, absolutely. And I think the issue here was, first of all, there were 10 universities that received millions of dollars from TikTok in 2020 or 2021. And these scholarships were going to race conscious scholarship programs in medicine. Now, out of the 10 universities that received these funds, only one, the University of South Dakota, reported these funds to the Department of Education as required by the law. All of the other universities did not report it. Uh, when I reached out to these universities to ask about this gift, uh, I should clarify, each university received $1 million each. So $10 million total for this scholarship program, $1 million going to each university. University of South Dakota reported the $1 million gift that they received. All the other nine universities didn't. Um, when I reached out to these universities, um, I mean, several of them just didn't respond to me, but the ones that did, some of them said, oh, oops, it was an oversight, we will report now, which indicated that they were not in compliance with the law. So, and when you, there, there's actually a publicly available database where 
the public can actually see what gifts universities receive from foreign countries. Um, some of these universities do not even appear once on that list. So I, I could see why maybe some government officials may not even be aware that TikTok was giving so much money to these universities for these scholarship programs. Talk about this. Let's get the nomenclature right because scholarship programs means one thing to most people when they hear it. Oh, you're giving money for some kid to go to school or an organization is trying to find specific people for specific programs like, you know, medical. Obviously, they'd be going for a high end student. There's other scholarships for, you know, disadvantaged students to go to school. Scholarship, though, we have seen a history with the Chinese uh, government using scholarships and higher education, not really as scholarships, but as a way to funnel money, funnel ideology, and frankly, funnel propaganda into it. So now that you've got a social media company that has those influences behind them, because there's no way they can't be influenced by them. And again, that's being generous. We're, we're going to leave it there. It's probably much more malicious than that. That's where you've really got a problem here, because now they're almost using the American education system against itself as a way for this foreign dictatorial government to spread their own influence. I think uh, something you just said right now, it's using it against itself, the, the institutions in America to work against itself. I think that's an interesting point you bring up because these scholarships aren't necessarily going to those based on merit. It is based on your skin color. And I think, uh, just to clarify what these contracts were specifying. So uh, these scholarship programs were primarily going to minority serving institutions. Minority serving here means uh, the majority of the students at these colleges are part of some sort of minority group. Eight of the schools were historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs. One of the colleges was a Hispanic, ser Hispanic serving institution and the University of South Dakota was the only non-minority-serving institution. Uh, the contracts that went to the minority-serving institutions did not have to specify that these scholarships had to be allocated based on race, but the University of South Dakota was particularly told that they must allocate at least $500,000 to underrepresented, uh, under sorry, historically underrepresented minorities, which the American Medical Association ties that definition of underrepresentation uh, directly to race and ethnicity. And of course, that's going to be a problem, especially after um, the Supreme Court has ruled against race-based admissions, uh, race-based scholarships are now under question as well. And frankly, I think if we want the best doctors, the best medical professionals in this country, we shouldn't be giving scholarships. We shouldn't be encouraging enrollment based on how you look or the color of your skin. It should be based on whether you can do the job. Yeah. Netu Arnold joining us. Part of the problem with the TikTok thing is I don't know how much people really understand how the platform works. They know it's a little short video thing, right? They know that piece of it. Do they understand the cultural influence of it? Talk, talk about that piece of this puzzle. You got into it in your piece a little bit as background, but look, this company 
this goes across all those barriers you just talked about. Everybody likes those little short videos, right? But the business behind this, the bite dance piece of this, tie those two things together for us because we need to get the comprehensive picture beyond just, oh, these are cute little videos. What can they harm? People know the data privacy part of it somewhat. Talk about ByteDance and tie those things together, though, because when you understand who's behind and who's actually running TikTok, now you get a different picture when you come to things like the university system. Yeah, and I think ByteDance is incorporated in the Cayman Islands, but it's headquartered in China. And the app that Americans get, TikTok, uh, the algorithm is a little bit different than those in China. Um, I believe that's Yin, if that's how it's pronounced. And... Uh, what the Chinese um, users of Duyin see is very different from what Americans see. Um, Duyin is promoting more uh, cult, like higher culture in the sense of, uh, you know, having better academics. Whereas over here, it's mainly these short videos that are more entertainment based. And in some ways, I mean, th this technology can be quite addictive and other American social media companies have also started to adapt that short form video such as uh, Instagram. So, and and I don't know, I, I feel like people have heard this quite a bit, but it, it might be ignored because the pleasure that they get from the app is just significantly more than these concerns that seem more long-term. I think a lot of people are more interested in short-term pleasures and thinking about the long-term consequences. Yeah, Netu Arnold joining us. You also talk about it in your piece. Um, <laughs> TikTok and or ByteDance and or China, they're not real big on American accountability. We all saw the video from a couple months ago. They pulled the TikTok executives in front of Congress it was a very polite stonewalling, but that feller was stonewalling. I've watched enough congressional stuff. He, he was talking in circles, making mouth noises, but not actually saying anything over and over again. How do they actually get to some kind of accountability here? Because it, to be fair to Congress here, they don't really understand tech in general. And anytime you watch, whether it's Facebook, Google, TikTok, what, like they just, you can just tell they don't really understand what they're dealing with and they pose and they preen. What would actual accountability with something like a TikTok where it is, you know, it is kind of a front company for a foreign government, but TikTok's more popular than Congress is. TikTok's more popular than laws are. How do we have a conversation about accountability there when you've got kind of a big old mess of competing interests? Well, I think in the space of higher education specifically, there is already a form of accountability and that is requiring universities to report the funds that they receive to the Department of Education. And when they don't report those funds, they should be penalized. Uh, that is already there in the law. It just needs to be enforced. And the fact that the Biden administration has not taken that so seriously is a problem. But that's why it's so important to document these kinds of instances so that when the time comes, when there's a uh, more prepared administration, um, we can hold these universities accountable. As uh, in terms of the larger issue of just holding the, the social media company TikTok accountable, it, it does seem like we need to try to foster a deal where TikTok is uh, 
is owned by the American uh, by America, essentially. Uh, I think we have better accountability laws here, though, albeit we could work on that and always improve it. But I think we have better accountability laws here. Yeah, and there's going to be a debate that we need to have about financial disclosure for higher ed in general and financial disclosure and accountability in Congress as well, because they're the ones supposed to be watching this stuff and they're not. And they're all kind of feeding each other. That's another topic for another day. Netto Arnold, this is a good piece. It's a National Review TikTok secret effort to influence higher education. We will link to the entire piece. Make sure you go through the links in the piece, too, though. She's got a couple of background things and they're going to really want to read about, especially some of the Supreme Court definitions, things like that. Netto Arnold, let folks know where they can keep up with you until we get you back on the program next time, my friend. Well, you can follow my work on Twitter at N-E-E-T-U underscore Arnold. Oh, I guess it's X now, not Twitter. My bad. Uh, and actually, my organization, the National Association of Scholars, uh, has been really keeping up with this um, with foreign funding, transparency in higher education. So you can follow us as well on our website at www.nas.org. The investigation I did into TikTok is actually part of a much larger project that I can't wait to reveal in a couple of months. Yep, you better come on here and tell us all about it now that you teased it, the, them's the rules. Uh, Netu Arnold, right. always great to have you back on the program. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. to her tell okay we haven't seen this fella in a long while but that's okay but we have to behave ourselves because i think technically he's my boss at young voices he's the coo now of young voices he's also an attorney but for the purposes of this conversation we will not hold that against him because he's a florida man we're going to talk a little florida addison hosner how are you sir great to see you again and what great great introduction how you doing andrew i'm doing great hey i gotta bring the a game for you because you know you sign all the checks um Let's talk around to Sanders and Disney. There, there's three prongs to this story when you back up off it. There's the political process of it. There's the legal aspect of it, which we have an update on. We'll get to that in a second. And then there's the PR part of it. Is that a fair way to say it? There's three prongs. Most people aren't wrapping them together to get the full picture, but they're kind of running in parallel and they cross each other and then they depart each other. And we have the politics then you have the legal stuff and then you have people's feelings. Is that a fair way to kind of parse it out big picture before you get into the particulars of it? Yeah, I think that's it's a pretty fair way to do it. With anything, especially with Ron DeSantis as of late, critical thinking is a top top tier skill in this situation. Trying not to be knee jerk about uh, your thoughts on the issue and look at it from the bigger picture, which you clearly are. So that's a good uh, uh, a good breakdown. Yeah, you were writing about it in the Hill, but you're also from Florida. You went to school for your undergrad in Florida. You're very familiar with that state. <sighs> Taking the politics out for a second and just analyzing. I think one of the problems with this Disney thing big picture was, and you talk about a little bit of it in your piece, and you talked about it in some other interviews you've done on this subject, Ron DeSantis's reputation as a governor was one thing, and it's what he's presenting as a presidential candidate is not totally different, but just a couple degrees off center from what that was. He was the non-lockdown governor. He was the hands-off governor. He's the government's going to stay out of your business. The free state of Florida, that was his tagline for a long time. 
one of the problems with this Disney thing is the base loves it. The online loves it. The chattering class loves it for and against, by the way, because it's great copy and it's good to rail against it as much as if you support him on it. Those folks like it. Most normies that don't follow politics, they like Disney more than any politician, period. And it kind of goes against that thing he had going of, well, we're the free state of Florida, but now you're going to attack Disney, which is synonymous with Florida. It just doesn't, it's not congruent, folks would say. Is that a fair way to put this? Yeah, it is. And, you know, I've been doing some additional research in this since writing the piece on the Hill. And I'd come across a, a poll, actually, that was conducted at the height of the uh, Disney scandal as that was really growing in April. And they found that 62% of Americans uh, do not agree with a politician punishing a corporation for speaking out on a political topic, which I think is still far too low. But interesting enough, 55% were Republicans. They don't agree with that. So like you said, Disney's a very lovable company, despite all the slander that may be set about them. The big thing is that families grew up with them, especially as a Floridian. It's just kind of a, a part of life. And going to Disney World as a child and bringing your family there is such a uh, a great experience and great time. It's just, you know, at the end of the day, it's a lot of long lines, expensive food, and uh, sitting out in the hot Florida sun. But generally, I think this is backfiring on him for that particular reason that not only on the politics side about going after a company for simply speaking their mind, but families in general, people, they look at Disney as a as a company in a place where we go to have fun. And now it's being roped into a political sphere where, uh, unfortunately, it shouldn't be there. It's it's tarnishing everyone on this. And, and that's the unfortunate reality of the situation. Yeah, Addison, Addison Hosner joining us. This, this is part of this, too, because, folks, look, I've got family that's been in Florida since the late 50s, that first generation of folks post-World War II that went down there and built modern Florida as we know it, right? There's nobody in Florida that doesn't understand how important Disney World and the Orlando area and everything that followed that, by the way, because a lot of people followed that model. They just inherently know it if you're a Floridian that Disney's important to Florida, right? Part of the problem when you go to a pander like picking a fight with Disney is I think on an innate level, the non-super political people just understand like, look, this is a partnership thing. You can correct them. You need to have oversight of them. But then you just go into a straight out, well, we're going to go to war with Disney. That just hits people wrong because they understand, look, it's a private company. It's the state of Florida government, but they've got to work together because it's such a massive. You're talking 90,000 jobs. You're talking billions of dollars. You know, Central Florida exists because of Disney the way we know it. That just hits people wrong, I think. And then you start getting into the legal stuff. Is there an inherent thing? You're a Floridian. You just understand Disney's important, don't you? Yeah, that's, you know, for Floridians, especially growing up where I was born, which was in Fort Myers, our total economy was frankly based off of tourism. And for us, it was our beaches. That was our main draw. And unfortunately, those have been wiped out by Hurricane Ian last year. And that city is now seeing the effects of lost tourism and what that truly meant to the economy. Well, the central Florida area and Florida as a whole benefits greatly from the Disney company being there. Uh, the Disney tourism uh, revenue is about $75 billion, give or take a few billion. And Florida's total tourism revenue is just a little bit over a hundred billion. So you're talking about three quarters of the state's tourism revenue coming from one singular company. And that company ha happens to be located in Orange County, Orlando, one of the biggest cities in the state, one of the fastest growing cities in the country. And so by going after them as a Floridian, whether you're from uh, central Florida or not, you inherently know this is a lifeblood for us. This brings in flights to our airports. This brings in uh, guests to our hotels, our rental cars, but that also 
extends to the restaurants and extends to you know shopping and and you get rid of that and you start making Disney pull back. I mean, they've already pulled back on a multi-billion dollar project that would have brought thousands of jobs to Florida. Well, since this whole DeSantis thing started, they've they've said, you know what, we're not going to do that anymore. What's the point? It sounds like Florida doesn't want us here or DeSantis is punishing us for just doing what we're allowed to do, which is speaking out against things. And, and in particular, they spoke out against House Bill 1557. It's the don't say gay uh, bill that was to limit uh, you know, sexual uh, sexual or gender talk in schools, uh, but not the way that most people think. Again, that's a very nuanced bill to talk about. Um, but in general, Floridians understand that I think attacking your 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 biting the hand that feeds, just to speak it plainly, is a is a losing strategy, whether politically or just from a social aspect. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Hosner joining us. This is not a new thing, of course. Um, I'm old enough to remember about 25 years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention picked a fight with Disney over um, kind of a similar thing, LGBT rights, gay rights. They were having, you know, gay pride day, that sort of thing. Uh, They obviously lost that fight because most Southern Baptists like to go to Disneyland like everybody else in Disney World. This is not new. The legal aspect of this is new. Uh, We know about, you know, the Reedy Creek District. We know the special tax exemption. We also know they take care of a lot of infrastructure in the state. Walk me through the legal part of this like I'm five for a second, because it is important to get it straight, especially with the new news now that um, Disney has scaled back their lawsuits, which we knew they were going to do. You you kind of shotgun and then you focus down. That's not unusual. They're going to stick to the free speech one and get it in state court now. But just walk us through that legal part, because that underpinned it and then people got into that. Just kind of explain it to us so we can kind of have a straight line through of how the legal process got into the story. 
Sure. So you alluded to it, the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which was set up in 1967. It gave Disney these special powers to govern and manage the area that they were going to eventually build the Walt Disney Company uh, campus on. And at that time, I'd like to remind everyone, Florida was really swampland. There was nothing there. Uh, the economy of Florida was much, much smaller. There wasn't any tourism occurring in that area. So Disney took a chance and they were afforded the special privileges that allowed them to manage a lot of things that otherwise would have been managed by the state. And this allowed them to circumvent government, which as we all probably agree is rather ineffective at fixing roads. Just go out and look at any pothole on your streets. I've been there for a few months. They were allowed to fix those without having to get state approval. They were allowed to do their own agriculture and set up their own uh, hospital and fire departments and police departments and manage all of that. Well, when DeSantis came in, he decided well, you spoke out against my bill. I don't like that. I'm going to replace this. I'm going to get rid of your special protections and do it under the guise of, of sticking it to the corporations. We can't have any corporation having these special privileges. And I'm, I'm completely in agreement with not having corporations with extreme power that otherwise doesn't exist for other you know, citizens. But the issue here is Disney took a chance on this when nothing was there. And so far up until this moment, it's not hurting the state of Florida. In fact, the taxes that they pay for and to maintain this Reedy Creek Improvement District would have been higher than that than the state actually imposing it on their own. So this whole situation with taxes and sticking to the corporate man, it, it's it's kind of misguided. So by replacing the Reedy Creek Improvement District which with his own group, this Central Florida Tourism District, as he called it, he instituted his own panel. They came in and wanted to overrule and get rid of a bunch of plans that Disney had already approved under their Reedy Creek Board. Well, the issue here is all of those plans that were implemented by the Reedy Creek Board had to go before the state legislature for voter approval. They got to manage and do everything once approved, but they still had to go to the state and say, hey, this is what we're looking to do. Can we get uh, approval on this? And it was went through the process, completely transparent. DeSantis was governor at the time, and it was all voted, yes, these contracts were approved. So they were good to go, right? Well, the Central Florida Tourism District that DeSantis appoints comes in and tries to void all those contracts saying that they are, uh, they're, they're ineffective and they're simply, they're invalid. Well, they weren't. And so Disney now has the right to sue saying that you've you know breached, breached a contract that we have uh, appropriately uh, put forth and has been approved through all the channels that we were prescribed. Uh, you're now going against us for our speech. So they've invoked, as you said, a lot of different legal theories. One was the takings clause of the constitution uh, the one right now that they've narrowed down is their spe free speech claim. Uh, and for those who are unaware of all these different claims and why that's important, there's a case open in the state courts and then there's a uh, court case open in the district courts, which is the federal courts. So they're generally just wanting to make sure that the appropriate uh, issues are being litigated in the appropriate courts. And right now they're making a point to say that the free speech issue is what they believe to be the uh, the ultimate issue in this case, which I would tend to agree with them. Yeah, the free speech part here, you know, we need to pause here because free speech has become a buzzword and people forgot what it actually means. So legally, put your lawyer hat on for a second. Free speech doesn't mean free from consequences. You and me can say whatever we want, but we're not free from the consequences of it. When you're a government entity, free speech means a little bit differently. When you're a corporate entity dealing with the government, it means something even a little bit more differently. Let's break down that nomenclature, not just skip over it, because a lot of people say free speech, but we don't take the time to break down that, like, yes, we have free speech under the First Amendment, but it also depends the parties involved, what they're doing, who they're doing, who they're doing it to, doesn't it? Yeah. Free speech 
simply you and I, like you said, we have free speech, but we're not free from the consequences of it. Uh, like a corporation, which has been decided in a couple cases, the most recent being a Citizens United case, I think that was back in 2010, uh, they decided that corporations have more of a citizen or, or personhood type protection. So they're afforded the entire Bill of Rights and things like that. And when a corporation or an individual like myself or yourself, we speak here today, we say something a government official isn't like, the government cannot then retaliate against a private citizen or a private company. You cannot use government or elected power to retaliate or silence someone for speaking their mind. Now, private entities, if I say something that someone else doesn't like, by all means, they can step in and say, get out of my business. You don't have to, you're not allowed in here. We don't want you here. A private person can do that to you. So you don't have freedom of speech everywhere you go. It's only freedom of speech and free from uh, attack or retaliation from the government. So in this case, Disney speaking out against House Bill 1557, Ron DeSantis then making it a bona fide point, and he articulates this in his book, he articulated in multiple interviews, that he is attacking Disney. He is going after them specifically because of what they said. That's an impermissible violation of the First Amendment. You cannot use government to punish someone for speaking out. Um, and so that that's really the central issue at play right now for Disney. Uh, that's the PR. Uh, that's the legal. Let's talk the political for just a second. You just alluded it to it. You know, it's the rhetoric here that that bothered me when this first came out. Look, Disney's a company that's so big, you need a government that can hold Disney accountable because they're so big that, you know, you need that. The other thing about it is, though, is the government also needs to be held accountable. And sometimes you need a, a entity as big as Disney that can stand up to the government and actually go toe to toe with the court. There's an imbalance here with the rhetoric, though, when you start out with, I'm going to war with Disney, I'm going to fight Disney. Politically, and as a communicator and somebody does media, I understand why he did that, because that gets his base fired up. It makes sense in one respect. The problem was, as a governor, as a leader, whether you're a president, a congressperson, a senator, county commission, we're talking about these boards now, the, the tourism boards. If you're in a position of leadership, public-private partnerships is at the core of a representative democracy. You have to be able to do that. And when you just go to the rhetoric of we're going to war with you, that kills that. And everybody's going to lose in the long run. How do we rein in the rhetoric on this kind of stuff? And with a leader like DeSantis say, hey, I can agree with you on 90, 95% things. This is too far and we need to pull this back a little bit. Hopefully his his polling numbers will be the the main changing factor here. I mean, he's, he's not doing so hot in Republican primaries. And a lot of this, I think, is at play here because a lot of his uh, combatants in the primary race are also critiquing him on this, including Donald Trump. So a lot of people always you know, talk about Trump as this, you know, he's out there, he's, he's crazy, he's a loon, yet Donald Trump is also speaking out against Ron DeSantis. So I think that should tell even those people something that, hey, you know, this probably isn't a, a winning strategy here, but this isn't new for him. Uh, his, his next attacker or his next uh, pivot was against Bud Light. As you may recall, there was the whole Dylan Mulvaney uh, transgender uh, influencer who was on the Bud Light cans. Well, 
Uh, there was the boycott, if you recall, on Bud Light sales, and those are still way down. Uh, DeSantis called for the boycott. He wanted that to ramp up, and now he's looking to file a lawsuit or do an investigation into Bud Light for uh, potentially breaching their duty to shareholders simply by making this business decision. And it's it's peculiar there since he was the one pushing for the boycotts, which caused the loss in value. And now he's wanting to do an investigation into Bud Light of why the value was lost. It's kind of a eat your cake and have it too, rile the base and then get mad about uh, the consequences of it. But him in general, it's concerning simply because he has made it a point of his campaign or made it a point of his last year and a half of politics to go after these corporations, which bring jobs to the state. There's multiple Budweiser uh, plants in Florida, one being, I believe, in, in St. Pete or that area, uh, another in Jacksonville. And then, of course, you have Disney spread out all throughout the state, including their cruise ships, which dock and, and pay massive uh, uh, fees at the Port Canaveral in Florida as well. And I think this is going to cause a, a ripple effect, maybe not right now, but as long as he is in control and people like him, if they were to assume the reins of governor or take over their, their congressional districts, you're going to see businesses, I think, a little bit more hesitant on coming to Florida, especially when the whole mantra of the campaign was make America Florida, as you said, you know, keep Florida great. It's all about free markets and free enterprise. Well, it's not. We clearly have a governor who who thinks it's free markets, but only if you agree with what he says. And uh, politically, that's an issue, but I think socially, that's also going to cause uh, a long-term effect of unintended consequences that will that remain to be seen. Yeah, Addison Hosner joining us. I think the ripple effect is a good way to talk about what you're saying. You alluded to, alluded to this in the Hill piece as well, though. When you pick a fight, was, and we're picking on DeSantis here, but he's not the only one that does this. He's just kind of the prominent one of the moment a little bit. When you pick a fight with Disney, when you get into these culture war things, even if you got a good point to start with, you wind up in a trap where you can't ever get out of it because Disney's not going anywhere. They're going to put out another movie. They're going to have another issue. They're going to build another building. They're going to open another park. These things become self-perpetuating. You get into these fights where even if you win it, there's another one in 10 minutes and you've only got so much bandwidth and it just kind of starts becoming all you get done. This is a trap, I think, and our friends on the left have the same problem on the other side of the spectrum. So we're just picking on DeSantis here. There's a lesson here for elected officials, especially, and even us in the in the commentariat. If this is all you do, eventually it's all you're going to get done. Yeah, and that's you know a great point. I, I mentioned that with DeSantis, especially with the emphasis on this type of you know action and conduct. Well, I think the voters, especially people like us, we want solutions. You know, great. I, I understand you don't like these companies for saying these things. Okay, that's one thing. But what are your plans for other? actions? How are you going to fix the main issues that are, are driving this country right now and things that people are, are really concerned about? We haven't really heard too much of that. And it continues to come back to these culture wars. And additionally, these these wars and these legal battles that he's trying to raise against Disney and now potentially against Bud Light, uh, you're looking at massive million dollar, you know, millions of dollar legal bills that aren't paid by Ron DeSantis. These are paid by Florida taxpayers. So the last reports, and again, it's public record, but they keep these pretty deeply buried. The last report we saw, this is going back to July, was that his lawsuits so far on, on woke culture, as he would put it, have cost over $17 million. And you think about the amount of money that we could use that $17 million in Florida to help fix the teacher shortage. Teachers don't get paid all too much in Florida. You could hire a lot of teachers for that money. You could also fix a lot of roads. You could help uh, fix up Fort Myers Beach from the hurricane. I mean, there's just so many other ways to be spending money instead of fighting legal battles against, like you said, a company like Walt Disney, 
which has billions upon billions of dollars in revenue, they are never going to go bankrupt. They aren't going to settle the case because they don't have the money to litigate. They're going to fight it to the end, especially for publicity's sake. They don't want to look like the ones who lost. And right now, you know, the whole point of the piece in the Hill was Ron DeSantis has most recently come out basically saying, we've moved on. You know, we're, we're done with this Disney stuff. We, we think he even advised that Disney drops the lawsuit, which as an attorney, I'll put that hat on. I'll tell you, I was never asked to drop my lawsuit in a case I was losing. You're only asked to drop your case when you got the other person dead to rights. And I think that's exactly what's happening here in DeSantis knows. Hosner. Okay, you're a Floridian. Let, let's game this out a little bit because let's say he doesn't get the nomination for president. He's behind right now. It looks like I I I don't want to do the GOP primary right now, but I I think we're in act of God territory for Trump to not win at this point. I know people don't want to hear that, but that's just where we're at as an observer who's been doing this for a while. I, I don't think you're going to beat Ron DeSantis in an election. I don't want to overplay the Disney thing. You're talking about three or three to five points probably on a guy that won by 20 points. Okay, so let's keep this in perspective. His career isn't over because of this. Yeah, It does ding him, though. It does change his brand a little bit. He's not the fresh-faced new guy now. He's a two-term governor. If he doesn't win this, where does he go? I know there, there's the looming Rick Scott Senate seat, the bag, and, and, and I got my own issues with Rick Scott. We'll talk about that some other day. Does he just ride out governor? Does he go for Sen- – what do you think the future for Ron DeSantis if the GOP primary nomination is not in the cards for him? Where do you think that goes? Because he's still very, very popular in Florida. Look, Flo- Florida's a Ferrari in a lot of ways. There's issues on the horizon. There's the insurance problems. There's demographic change. But for the most part, he's got a pretty steady machine that he's the head of, and he can crow about that record. What do you think he does going forward if he doesn't get the presidency? Yeah, Andrew, as you alluded to earlier in, in the show – you know, before all of this, he was relatively beloved by by most Floridians, even those who are more center left. Uh, they did not look at, you know, Florida as a as a complete train wreck. Yeah, you don't agree with everything the man does, especially if they're on an opposite uh, political ideology than yourself. But during the COVID years, uh, we were living pretty free down there. Uh, you know, what's a mask? It was July 2020, and we're going to the grocery stores and walking around and doing all these things. And I look at my friends and family living in Michigan and they're on a complete state lockdown. So a lot of Floridians kind of got a taste of, okay, this is a type of uh, leadership that allows me to live my life free of government interference and allows me to make public safety decisions for myself. And, and for that reason alone, he, I think, carried a lot of favor. You talked and alluded back to his original, uh, the past election when he won re-election for governor, he beat Andrew Gillum by, it was such a, a close margin. It was unbelievable. But then he won the second one by, by a landslide. So I don't think he he's lost his ability to win politically in Florida. I definitely, my next step would say probably run for Senate. That would be the most logical choice for him to stay involved. As long as he keeps his feet uh, in tune and, and stays with politics, I don't see him disappearing. But, you know, it kind of reminds me of, of Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush was a beloved governor in the state of Florida. We all loved what he was doing. We all thought, you know, after his brother finished up his presidency, that likely he would be that nominee. And you go back to the 2016 election with Donald Trump, Jeb was considered 
uh, one of the front runners at the time, and he ended up not even making it to the end. So uh, I think Ron DeSantis might need some rehabilitation for his image or rehabilitation for his platform after this uh, election cycle, because it, yeah, like you're saying, all signs are pointing to a Donald Trump um, primary, and I doubt uh, they would ever team up together on a ticket. Uh, DeSantis has far too much pride for that. And I think at this point, the bridge is burned between the two of them. Yeah, I think you're right on that. Addison Hauser joins. Okay, I wanted to give you a minute, though, because I was joking about you being the boss. Uh, you are the COO of Young Voices. This is obviously an organization I've been with a couple of years. We have the folks on all the time. Very proud of my work there, especially the mentoring stuff that folks don't see on camera that I get to do. Just give folks a, a little snippet of Young Voices other than me just talking about it all the time, because it, it's not just a good organization. It's doing a good thing with really, really good I hate to call them young people because I start sounding old because I'm more the middle-aged voice now, but uh, it's good people doing good things. If I got tired of whining about the media, I want to do something about it. So we're making better folks to go into the media. That's kind of the core of what we're doing. You tell the folks, though, because I think it's important. I'm proud of the work we've done there. Just give them the sales pitch real quick. Yeah. Nonprofit based in Washington, D.C. Uh, we help 18 to 35-year-olds make waves in you know, public relations, academia, help them move forward in their careers in public policy and get them to where they want to go. And I, I think, you know, we're great examples of it. I was a practicing attorney in Florida. I was, you know, I went to law school with the dreams of being, being a constitutional litigator and things like that and wasn't able to scratch that itch. Came across Young Voices, became a writer for them. And one thing led to another, you know, writing pieces, getting published, then all of a sudden appearing on TV. And all that's possible with Young Voices. They have a team of editors. We have a team of editors who edit work at no cost to the contributors. It's an application process. Once you're in, you're in. And we assist you and get you to where you want to go. And I've watched some uh, really talented young individuals elevate their careers and also build portfolios that lead to jobs, whether it's uh, in policy or law or academia. It helps you. It helps show your competence. And also, like you said, gives you an outlet to express yourself. Because all too often, I think Americans sit around and we always are commentating at the news. We want to you know, have our voice heard. And most of the time it, it falls into the sea of internet speak, whether you're on X or Twitter uh, or Facebook or people always commenting, but it never goes anywhere. Well, we give you that avenue to get you in front of thousands to potentially millions of readers. Uh, we have people get in the Wall Street Journal, obviously The Hill, Newsweek, USA Today, and then a bunch of smaller or more local outlets, whatever fits the piece. So um, it's great work. I'm very proud of what we've been able to accomplish uh, before I came on board and since I've been on board. And uh, I think the future is very bright for us. So if uh, anyone knows anyone who'd like to get involved, by all means, we welcome everyone with open arms, regardless of political ideology. Yeah, and I'll put the link out there. Uh, the, there's a lot of new stories breaking now about especially things like the podcasting business, the content creator. There's a lot of unworthy people out there that really scam folks and take their content and take their money. We don't charge folks a dime for the publicity we give them. I've done UK media for them. I've done worldwide stuff. It's amazing. And I'm very thankful for it. And I love working with the young folks. I've been 35 for a very long time, my friend. We'll just leave it at that. Um, but thank you so much for the time today. Let folks know how they can keep up with you personally. We'll put all the Young Voices links in there. We're also going to put a, the link to the piece in the hill. This is not going away. I know there's a little crowing on social media, but that court case, keep an eye on that. First Amendment's court cases are important. Let folks know how to keep up with you until we get you back on the program, my friend. Yeah, I don't. I no longer have a, an X or Twitter account, but you can follow me on LinkedIn. I do post and updates on there, as well as on YoungVoices.com, uh, Young-Voices.com. 
And on there, we have our talent pages you can find there. And that will post any recent media appearances or writings or publishings that I have been doing. So you can keep up on what I'm, uh, what I'm involved with. You do good work, sir. I appreciate you greatly. Thank you for the time. Addison Hosner. We'll talk soon, sir. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, sir. Tell. Let's end on a good note. We haven't got to do these in a couple of shows because we've been pretty full up on news stuff, but we like to end the program with good news because there's so much bad news out there. Let's go down to Columbia, South Carolina, a place I've been driving back and forth through going to Atlanta a bunch recently. Uh, ABC 15 News, WPDE.com has this. We will link to it in the Substack notes, herdtel.substack.com. Make sure you're subscribed for free there. Harvest Hope Food Bank received $175,000 donation from public supermarket charities in order to purchase a mobile food pantries. Publix has announced it will be donating more than 40,000 pounds of produce to fill the food pantries for an entire year. While the new pantries, they hope to serve over 20 million meals to community members experiencing food insecurity in 20 counties across the state. Public Supermarket President Keith Mur Kevin Murray, excuse me, made the visit to Harvest Food Bank on Thursday to volunteer alongside more than 70 associates from surrounding stores in the Midlands. They worked to distribute food and produce donated by Publix from the Harvest Hope Mobile Food Pantry to clients at Harvest Hope Food Bank during Public Services Week. We're incredibly thankful for this donation provided by our friends at Publix, said Ernie Rowe, the Harvest CEO. According to the press release, throughout the weeks of September the 18th to the 22nd, nearly 7,500 public associates in seven states, volunteered with 150 food banks, pantries, and other nonprofit organizations focused on hunger for Hunger Action Month. I like this idea. Mobile food pantries, stock them up. You can go to places. We just covered uh, last week on the show food deserts. Everything from Chicago to Clay County, West Virginia, one of the biggest cities to one of the smallest places in America. Very rural, very mountainous. I know it well. Right up Route 4 from Frametown. Um, listen. Food is an issue. That's why we cover food. That's why I do Twitter Supper Club. Why I write about food. One thing every human being on the planet has in common, we all got to eat. So this is a great story on how they can do that. I like this idea of the mobile food banks. Think of it like a food truck, but you can actually shop from it. You can go into these areas, let people get something more than they may be able to get from a gas station or a Dollar General. Cool idea. Good charity work by Publix, which is a company that has a pretty good reputation. Make sure you check this out. Support it if you can find it. And that'll do it for Herd Tell. However you're listening or watching the program, we sure do appreciate it. Make sure you're subscribing and following on all those social media platforms and whatever platform you're getting the program on, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, we're on iHeartRadio, we're even on some places over in India that I can't really pronounce. However you're listening, make sure you're following and subscribing to that platform, even if you listen on multiple platforms. Do it for all of them. And if they give you a chance to leave a rating and a comment, do that too. We'd really appreciate it. That's a couple of reasons. One is we can track that, make sure we're getting it to you the way you want to get the program. Number two is it lets those programs and platforms know our little programs we're checking out. It only costs you a couple of clicks, it means a whole lot to us. 
and we'd sure appreciate it. So that'll do it. So till next time, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you again next time for more Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.